we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikori, an executive director of the Center. And this week we have on the line Rui Teixeira, who is a uh, non-resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, which may lead you to think he's conservative, but he's not. Before that, he was at the Center for American Progress and has written a couple of books on the politics of the Democratic Party. He wrote uh, 20 plus years ago, was co-author of the Emerging Democratic Majority. And more recently, since that didn't happen, he wrote, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? So he's an incisive analyst, a PhD in sociology, an incisive analyst of how Democratic Party politics have changed. And that's obviously relevant to immigration. So Rui, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. And I guess the place to start is how did the kind of standard Democratic line on immigration, why did it change? Because it used to be, there used to be a little more diversity of opinion. And there were, in fact, people who were significant numbers of people who were more hawkish on immigration on the Democratic side. And that just doesn't exist at the elected official and kind of democratic apparatus level. What happened? Yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting story. We cover it in, in our book, John Judas and I, you know, because I think most people don't know today if they ever did, <laughs> remember if they ever did, right. ever knew it, that back in the day, Democrats had a much different stance toward illegal immigration than they do today. If you go back to the uh, 80s and 90s, you know, you had the Jordan Commission, where basically a lot of Democrats, and particularly those oriented toward the labor movement, which used to be a lot stronger in the Democratic Party than it is today, basically saw uncontrolled levels of immigration as being a threat to low-wage workers and to unions. Mm -hmm. And that basically the kind of people who are for quasi-open borders, and the more immigration, the better, those were criticized as being people who just wanted low-wage labor who wanted to undercut the labor movement. In other words, business. Right. <laughs> Businesses could benefit from employing illegal workers because, you know, they pay them very much. That was Bernie Sanders' point. Ezra Klein brought up the open borders thing. He said that's a Koch brothers policy, and he's half right only, but he was at least half right. But he's also, even Bernie Sanders has changed his tune to some degree, right? That's right. And he's, he's a reflection of that evolution of the Democratic Party's toward this vastly different attitude, which really does start in the 90s and, and the early part of the 21st century, when you see more and more people in the Democratic Party, including some people in the labor movement, like from SEIU, taking a much different attitude toward illegal immigration and basically being much more oriented toward an amnesty, some sort of path to citizenship for illegals already in the country and sort of losing interest in the whole question of, of deportation, the whole question of controlling the borders the whole idea that we really needed to 
keep a lid on immigration. We needed to have a much more orderly system. That became not only something that a lot of Democrats and the sort of shadow party that John and I talk about in our book, not only did they lose interest in it, they became actively hostile to it, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Because if you really wanted to tighten border security, that is just prima facie evidence that you're sort of a a xenophobe and a racist, and you just don't want more brown people in the country and bad on you. And the whole paradigm that Democrats used to kind of believe in about how you needed to have immigration controlled and you needed to see it not just as an unalloyed good, but as something that could have potentially deleterious effects on the low-wage labor market and on unions, and that Democrats as a party of the working class had to be very careful about that. You really saw that attitude start to change in this penumbra of activist groups and nonprofits and foundations. So when they all become, a lot of them become much more oriented toward this, you know, sort of very forgiving attitude toward levels of immigration, including illegal immigration. And that really changes the character of the party. Liberals in the party become very identified with this, mm-hmm. this attitude toward immigration and sort of very permissive attitude toward it. I mean, not that it all happens at once. I mean, we can even look back at the Obama administration and see, you know, who's criticized as being the deporter in chief. And despite the ways in which the party had changed by the time he came into office, he still recognized there was a need to at least try to control the border and that some of the things the groups were urging him to do just didn't make any sense politically and substantively. But I think over the course of the teens, that really changed the course in reaction to Trump. You know, Democrats don't respond to the challenge of Trump being able to weaponize illegal immigration against the Democrats by kind of trying to find a middle ground where you combine humane treatment with, being, you know, having toughening up the border. They basically just gave up on, on the latter, right? Right, yeah. You know, to try to enforce the border was, again, the kinds of things that right-wing people believed in and not right. good, good, honest, liberal people like are in the Democratic Party. And that's where we are today. And, you know, I think Biden is just tying himself into knots, trying to deal with this situation and right. realizes what a liability is. Before we get on to Biden, I did want to sort of underline how different things were in the past. And you referred to it, obviously. But now this is a while back. But in the fighting in Congress back and forth over a number of years in the early 80s over what ended up being the big 1986 bill mm-hmm. that President Reagan signed that amnesty ended up about 3 million people in exchange for prohibiting for the first time ever the employment of illegal immigrants. The leader of the effort against amnesty and for what is called employer sanctions, the ban on hiring illegals, was Lane Kirkland of the AFL-CIO. Right, right. And in other words, the organized labor was the actor in pushing for a more hawkish immigration policy. And as you suggest, I think it's the changes in organized labor also that have been part of this change. I mean, my sense is that, generally speaking on the left, what's happened is that the economic issues have become less important, and it's become more of a cultural left is kind of what it amounts to. That's been my sense, and I think that's not been good for the Democratic Party. Personally, just full disclosure, I'm Republican, so that's fine with me, but it's not good for the country either. Mm -hmm. Right, right. No, it isn't. Because we need to have a constructive debate around the 50-yard line of where the public is, is is kind of the way I think of it. In other words, there's always going to be differences of opinion. Democrats are probably going to be more permissive or liberal on immigration, but the debate isn't happening in the kind of around the middle of where public opinion is. 
there's only one party that's now in that range of public opinion, and unfortunately, the Democratic leadership, at least, not necessarily voters, are way off, to continue the football analogy, way off on like the 10-yard line where the public isn't. And I just don't think that's, that's just not healthy for the republic, apart from the prospects of the Democratic Party. Yeah, no, Mark, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, we call it in our book, cultural radicalism. And right. The second part of our book is entirely about these kinds of issues and how they have become culturized and how they reflect the agenda more of the shadow party, as we describe it again, those activist groups, nonprofits, foundations, academia, you know, mm-hmm. big microphone, public intellectuals, a lot, big part of the media landscape, especially the legacy media. And they've all kind of singing from the same hymn book about immigration, about race, about gender ideology, even about climate, which is you know, a sort of complicated issue probably don't want to get into here. But there's this sort of set of commitments about these issues that is not susceptible to debate. I mean, these are looked at in a Manichaean, good and evil way. People who say certain things that sound tough about immigration, it isn't just an alternative policy viewpoint, <laughs> right? right? It reflects yeah. the fact they don't like brown and black people and they don't, you know, like the multicultural, multiracial America that's developing. And they're, they're troglodytes, they're reactionary. Right. That's the only reason why people would worry about an issue like this. So that doesn't lead to any kind of productive debate. And as you point out, Mark, it reflects not the views of ordinary voters, not even ordinary voters in and around the Democratic Party, right. who are generally much more moderate than the people who purport to speak in the name, particularly these groups, particularly the shadow party. So, yeah, no, it's really kind of a tragedy because, you know, you, you don't get the kind of debate that we need, the kind of political discourse, the kind of civility, and ultimately, I think, the kind of solution we need to a very right. difficult problem like like immigration, it's not going to be solved by the kind of bomb throwing on, on either side yep. and assisting on categorizing your opponent is essentially not, not having an alternative viewpoint or a different, you know, different approach to the issue, but, but reflecting their fundamental evil and satanic nature. I think this is very bad, really. And we'll put a link in the show notes, but you had written a piece at, your, at the Substack you write for called Liberal Patriot entitled, Could Immigration Hand the 2024 Election to Trump? And a line in there that I think sums up the, the problem that, as you put it, the shadow party, I don't know if shadow is the right word, but sort of the democratic apparatus, you say that there is, reflects their view of it. More is better and less is racist isn't much of an immigration policy, but it is the default position of many Democrats. And that's what frustrates, I think, a lot of constructive restrictionists who want to you know, engage in this as a policy issue even if they don't get everything they want. And I got to say, I think Trump clearly accelerated that process on the left, but mm-hmm. he didn't cause it. In other words, it was there already, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, uh, Trump accelerates everything. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> you know, he, he realized, you know, savvy operator that he, he was and is in some ways, that as the Republicans had become more of a working-class party and some of these issues were coming to the fore, he could take advantage of this and basically outmaneuver the other people in the Republican Party. They're basically, uh, he understood a lot of these voters hated Republican elites as much as they hated Democratic elites. Yep. And immigration was a perfect issue on which to, to make that claim. He had others as well, but he was able to really push that. But even before that, if we look at the Democratic Party, as you're saying, 
look, I was at the Center for American Progress for many, many years. Which just for people who don't follow this, it's uh, one of the premier liberal think tanks. Right. Probably the biggest and most influential center-left think tank and very closely affiliated with the Democratic Party. And I saw that evolution over time where you went from the kind of people who worked in immigration and the general default position of the institution went from being trying to be sort of balanced about the issue, I thought, to definitely moving in the direction of, you know, our only job really is to liberalize the system and promote, you know, sort of a path to citizenship for immigrants. You just didn't talk about border security. You just didn't. Right. Even though there's sort of an obvious part of it. I mean, I, as a public opinion guy mm-hmm. and as someone who knew at least a little bit about the issue, I'd say, wait a minute. You know, you look at what the public thinks, and they do want border security. They do want people integrated into society once we're here. We have to, we have to speak to those concerns if we're going to be serious about this pathway to citizenship for people who are already here. And we have to have an immigration system that actually, you know, has clear, clear criteria for who can come and who, who cannot. And, you know, it just seemed obvious to me, as anyone with common sense would think, if you don't have a way of dealing with people who are trying to come into the country simply because they're, they want to come because it's a better place to be, then you don't have a system, right? I mean, right. they're not all asylum seekers. They're not. We have to be able to convince the American people we have a, not only a humane system, but a fair and just one that has rules. Right. People hate like people who break the rules, right? right? One thing that really exemplifies this, of course, Mark, is the, the Vogue, and I saw this in the American Progress, and American progress, and you know, across the left, really, you couldn't say illegal immigrants. Mm-hmm. You had to say undocumented immigrants. I don't know how many times I was corrected for this. They said, well, wait a minute. I mean, didn't they break the law? Aren't they right. kind of illegal? No, right. no, 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 you, you can't say that. I never understood stuff like that. By, by using a different word, you're not changing the substance of the issue. Right. You're just not. Yep. So, yeah, I saw that evolution very much, and I think over time we saw all the institutions in and around the Democratic Party all the various think tanks, the kind of educated elites, basically, who control the Democratic Party, they all move in this direction. They all adopt the same attitude toward, toward the immigration issue, which you know, sort of downplays radically the issue of border security and a sort of uh, system with actual rules that are enforced <laughs> and sort of leans heavily on the idea that you know, the people who are concerned about that are, are the bad people. And the most important thing, is, you know, comprehensive immigration reform, which really means the whole pathway to citizenship thing for people who are already here. And that was people's primary concern. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. I mean, I think, yes, you do have to deal with the issue of people who, who have been here for a while and so on. And uh, you can't have them being this sort of rogue labor market because you, you're not going to go in and deport all of them. I mean, that was a reasonable talking point, right? Right. But if that's your immigration policy, that you just want to do something about that, and you don't give a good gosh darn about the issue of the border and how you actually control immigration, then you know this leads to this kind of ineffective policy and, and sort of political stalemate we, we have today. And also under Biden, of course, we've seen the whole system kind of basically get out of control. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of reached its logical conclusion in a sense under the Biden administration, where, as you suggested, under Obama, some of these trends were clearly there. But, you know, Obama still acknowledged that rules needed to be enforced. And, you know, his second Homeland Security Secretary, Jay Johnson, even though I disagree with him on a lot of stuff, he was a serious person who understood that his job was to, among other things, 
enforce immigration laws. You know, it's kind of ironic that a lot of the, I mean, this is ironic sort of for people in your position that sort of Trump ends up being the only person articulating a lot of the concerns when in fact, you know, there should be a variety of people with a variety of different views around that 50-yard line. And it's like Trump is the only person with the football running around the 50-yard line. It's, it's kind of remarkable. Yeah, well, this is, this is one of my big hobby horses. <laughs> if you don't want Trump and uh, the right wing of the GOP hogging up the, the center of the right. field and a lot of these hot-button issues, then you actually have to speak to the concerns that they are speaking to and offer an alternative. If you simply deny there's anything to what they say, this is like a non-issue ginned up by the right-wing media machine, then you, you are powerless and you are giving the microphone to people like Trump. And you're not going to, you know, it's going to hurt you politically. And certainly it's not going to do much to solve the issue. I call it the Fox News fallacy, right? And re- recall, you know, sort of going back to the, the those hallowed days of yesteryear when Biden was first in office. Remember how the initial surge of the border was treated? It was like all because of warm weather. And it was all Fox News was talking it up. It's really not a big deal. It's going to subside. Happens every year. Happens every year, the president said. It happens every year. It's like uh, it happens every spring. So, you know, that was complete baloney. And anyone who was paying any attention knew that was baloney. It wasn't like looking at it through ideological lenses, but those were the talking points of the Democratic Party at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is just very typical. If you do that, if you refuse, you know, basically you say, who are going to believe, you know, me or your own eyes to the, to the public, mm-hmm. you know, this, this will not redound to your benefit over the long haul, because in fact, Frequently the case that when these issues come up, Fox News may overcover them, mm-hmm. and they may talk about it in not the 100% correct way, but, you know, they're not making this stuff up. Right, right. <laughs> you know, there really was a problem at the border, and people really were concerned about it. So if you don't like the way Fox News or conservatives are talking about X or the way Trump is talking about X, then you've got to have your own version that speaks to the same concern and tries to reach some of the same voters. And if you simply refuse to acknowledge the problem, you're just hunkering down, you're just appealing to the people in your liberal base. And again, back to your point, Mark, it doesn't do a whole lot to actually solve the problem that people are concerned about. And for instance, the White House seems to have realized, I guess last month, maybe end of December, that there's an election coming up. And they sent the president and uh, Secretary of State Homeland Security down to Mexico. They seem to have sort of come to some kind of deal with the Mexicans, and the numbers actually are down. They're still extremely high, but they're not at, they, they aren't at the ridiculous levels they were in December. And the Mexicans really are doing it. I mean, I was on the border recently and talked to some Me- the Mexican army now deployed on the border. So they very much want Biden to get reelected. And so their Mexican government is doing everything in its power to do that. And the president, you know, in the recent sort of fight over this, or I don't know if it's even a fight, the kerfuffle over the Senate bill said, you know, he, if he got this power, he would shut the border down. It, there is a certain, it seems to me, credibility gap in the sense that, well, why didn't you do this three years ago? I mean, how, do, how would Democrats get that credibility back? And your sometime co-author, John Judas, just had a piece recently in the New York Times saying that, you know, look, there's all kinds of legislative changes that are needed. And 
you know, I may agree with some and not agree with others, but that's a legitimate point. But he said, look, I'll just quote the last line of it. He said that, in other words, the fact there's no bills being passed, quote, that leaves the onus of doing something squarely on the Biden administration, which will do itself and the country a favor by acting, even if it can only do so in a limited fashion, end quote. How likely do you think that actually is, that the administration will do something substantive to kind of try to regain some credibility with the public on the issue? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. I would hesitate to put a point probability estimate on that. (laughs) So I guess I would say it's probably below 50%. I just think the pressures on the administration are so heavy from the left of the party and from the advocacy groups that for Biden to really say, okay, well, we weren't able to pass this bill, but by God, I'm still going to do my level best to shut down the border using any you know, any instrument I have at my disposal. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard to see him saying that because he knows that if he does this, the level of vitriol within the Democratic Party will be through the roof. It would be like a Gaza-style pushback in my sense. You know what right, I mean? Right, Gaza-style pushback. So on the other side, there's the politics of it, which, which should propel him in the direction of doing just that, right? Right, right. I mean, his rating on, on handling border security is like, you know, 20 percent, depends on the poll, 18 to 20, 28 or something. I'd really right. bad that he's behind Trump at this point in the poll. At this point in 2020, he was ahead. You know, you can anal- analogize the campaign, the previous campaign. The incumbent president should not be in this situation, particularly with the economy the way it is. So it, clearly at the margin, it's a very important issue politically and for his, his future. So that's pushing him to do something about it. But I just think the net result of this makes it maybe less likely rather than more likely that he will actually do serious stuff at this point to shut down the border. I'd like to believe that's wrong, but you know, you can look at how Democrats are playing this right now. Mm-hmm. As you know, the current party line is, well, you know, we tried to do something about this and those Republicans, right. you know, they're playing politics with this and they, they won't let us do anything. So, <laughs> so what can we do? You know, there, our hands are tied. Those darn Republicans. But as you say, how much credibility does that have after three years of the performance at the border that that we've seen? Right. And, you know, again, Republicans can make the argument that there is, in fact, you know, some significant stuff that could be done right now. Yeah, maybe it wouldn't solve the problem long term, pretty much by definition, but there is stuff that could be done and he's not doing it. So that argument, it's not clear to me Democrats win that argument, but I, right. I do think that that is what they're hoping will be the case. You know, what didn't Biden say he was going to talk about this every day at every corner of the country or something? Right, well, right. Uh, he tried to do something. Uh, Democrats tried to do something about it. Republicans wouldn't let him. It's on them now. Right. But I just don't, I'm not at all convinced that's the way the median voter is going to look at this. <laughs> so I think. There's a couple, I mean, one of the things, obviously, that I think makes it less likely Biden's going to reorient, and I'm not making Alzheimer's jokes or anything like that here, but he's clearly a weak president, I mean, personally himself. I mean, we saw that recently and all that. And again, I'm not making fun of anybody, but you need to have a strong, energetic executive if you're going to push back against your own people. And that's just not happening. And I think the other thing is all that we've been discussing here about how the party sort of the, the, the party apparatus has changed its view on this. The analogy I draw, or the, I don't know if it's an analogy, but the comparison is to what Jimmy Carter 
went through in 1980 with the Mariel boat lift. I think you were probably aware of that at the time of being a similar age as me. And Jimmy Carter, to some degree, invited that. I mean, it wasn't purely him, but he had said, you know, we will welcome with open arms and open hearts anybody who comes. From Cuba, 120,000 people showed up overnight in Florida. And the Democratic governor there was screaming bloody murder. And Jimmy Carter was able to turn on a dime and shut it off because he hadn't run on immigration. It wasn't the kind of salient issue that it is now. And so the president, whoever you know were a Democratic president today, doesn't have that flexibility, even if he wanted to change things. Right. No, he doesn't have that flexibility. And as you say, Biden as president, leaving aside the issue of age-related decline, he's not the kind of guy to do that. I mean, my view on this is I think Biden is a creature of the party. Mm -hmm. I think he's used to negotiating those currents. He doesn't really want to, he's not a, you know, I'm going to do a sister soldier kind of guy. Right. You know, he's not going to have leadership, uh, exert leadership in that way. He wants everybody to get along. He's responsive to the currents and the pressures on him, including within his own staff. The idea that he would make a decisive effort to turn this issue around by pissing off vast sectors of the Democratic Party. I have a really hard time envisioning it. Right. I agree. And so the Democrats had a similar problem, not on immigration, but on things like crime and other issues back in the past. And I mean, what seems to have changed it is they got clobbered over and over again. I mean, George McGovern got annihilated. Walter Mondale got annihilated. Michael Dukakis got annihilated. And after enough 49 state losses, Bill Clinton came in and, you know, very masterfully kind of staked out middle ground and was rewarded politically for it. The problem is, you know, I don't see that kind of overwhelming defeat, especially based on immigration, happening that would then lead to the kind of rethinking and reorganization. Partly because of Trump, because you know people are even if they are against immigration policies, they hate Trump so much they're going to vote for whoever's not Trump, regardless. But even if Trump leaves the stage, it just seems to me politically, the issue of immigration and probably others have become so polarized. You're just not going to see forty-nine state defeat that's going to lead to rethinking policy preferences. Mm-hmm. What are you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think that's. You know, that's definitely a factor here. I mean, nothing compels the party more to change its orientation on an issue or issues than getting clobbered upside the head with a two-by-four electorally. Mm -hmm. And that does seem to be more difficult to do these days because of the nature of the polarization and how one way John and I think about it and describe it in our book is it's really this sort of stalemate between the parties, this, this unending teeter-totter of the parties back and forth, which negative aspect of the other party can you make most salient in the next election if you're, you know, you're the party that wants to benefit. So a lot of outcomes seem to depend on, as the public is receiving the signals and processing them, which, which thing do they dislike the most about the other party, which right. then leads them to vote for your party. So yeah, I, I think that that is a problem. And, and look, the way the Democrats, sort of mainstream Democratic apparatchiks and commentators and consultants, I mean, their party line these days is problem, what problem? Right. I mean, okay, yeah, you look at the, um, 
you know, the polls, Biden's behind, but, you know, economy's improving, you know, look at 2018, look at 2020, look at 2022, look at 2023, the oh, argument no. goes, right? 2018, we cleaned their clock. 2020, we won the presidential election. Yeah, we lost a few House seats, but we still kicked Trump out of there and we took the Senate. 2022, we were supposed to get our clock clean. We didn't. We lost less seats than we were supposed to. We even gained a Senate seat. In 2023, we've been cleaning up in special elections. Look at the abortion issue. So, you know, famously, Simon Rosenberg, the, the guy whose substack is called Hopium. Not sure I would have picked that title. He's been quoted as saying the Democratic Party is in the best shape of, of any of our lifetime. <laughs> so, and this is not uncommon. The basic right. idea is to look at that string of elections, say, yeah, doesn't look good right now. And yeah, I mean, we don't control the government completely, but the Republicans are so terrible that we've been able, we're able to leverage that into success in elections. And we'll continue to do that. And the real problem in this country is not us, but the other side. There's nothing to fix here, nothing to see. We're on a roll. I mean, I'm telling you, this is what right. people believe, despite you know, what the polls tell us today, despite the image the Democratic Party has, despite the fact they're losing working class voters left and right, including among non-whites. None of this is really, I think, for the faithful. That does not, you know, affect them very much. The party line is we're in great shape. It's sort of like the religious activist uh, 19th century said the world's going to end and they all gathered on a hill. The world didn't end. And they said, well, it's going to end, but it's going to end two months from now. And so there's still waiting for that. In other words, it's sort of this triumph of hope over experience. But they're not wrong in the sense that they have, the Democrats have not been clobbered in the past. And and even if they lose this time, even if Biden or whoever it is ends up being the candidate loses, it's not going to be a landslide. You know, it'll be another one of these, you know, 50,000 votes over three states kind of election probably, right? Right, but to, but to like smoke a little hopium here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you lose to Trump two out of three times, right? Yeah. And they're probably going to, almost certainly going to lose the Senate too. Right. I mean, don't you think this might provoke some rethinking in significant sectors of the party? I mean, I would certainly hope so, even if it is a narrow defeat, right? I would, I would think this would lead to some rethinking about, yeah, maybe this, our party isn't really well constructed to compete in enough areas of the country. Maybe we really are behind the eight ball among the working class. Maybe we, we need to move to the center on some of these issues. Maybe our image is, you know, Trump may be extreme, but for some reason voters pick this guy over us. And, and maybe we need to look in the mirror and figure out some of the ways in which we appear to be extreme to a lot of voters. So I would hope that would happen if Trump, God help us all, is, is reelected. But I mean, that that didn't happen in 2016, even though there were some people who, you know, sort of some honest people who were trying to Right, but Mark, that. that was a shock to the system. I mean, I nobody saw this coming. This, right. is, this is a one-off, right? Right. And I think the way that was that was processed was unfortunate by the Democrats. We talk a lot about it in the book, mm-hmm. where they kind of saw it as this, this strange xenophobic uprising right, right. of the heartland. And, you know, this... <laughs> We'll get rid of these people. We'll get past this reactionary outpouring in 2018. They did it in 2025. So, you know, the whole hashtag resistance stuff, right? Right, right. Yeah. The only important thing is to figure out how to mobilize resistance. We don't need to worry about all those people who 
defected from the Democrats in the heartland. These white working class voters who are really just the, you know, the outcasts of history will soon, will soon not bother us anymore. So that was 2016. But if it happens again, yeah, right? Yeah. I just think that is a little bit harder to laugh off, especially if we see, I think if Trump does win, mm-hmm. uh, we'll see another significant shift of non-white working class voters toward the Republicans and toward Trump. Right. And if that doesn't lead to some rethinking, good heavens. <laughs> yeah. You got to start asking questions at that point. But to your point, if Biden wins again, which I think is quite possible. Sure. I mean, he's behind in the polls right now, but Trump is a very flawed candidate. Democrats, they're now a coalition that benefits from high turnout voters, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe they'll have better success getting their loyalists to the polls than, than Republicans who really benefit when more peripheral voters show up. Another way of putting this is the sweet spot for Democrats in this election is, you know, obviously presidential elections going to have a higher turnout than a mid- midterm, but they don't want it to be too high. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because yeah, exactly. then all these peripheral voters who aren't enthusiastic about the Democrats and much more open to voting for Trump show up and and Katie bar the door. Right, right. So they could pull it off. Now, if they do that, what are the chances that even if they lose the Senate, as they probably will, or more divided government, what are the chances they rethink things at that point? You know, Biden, second term, you know, sort of bumbling his way through another term. Democrats not really able to get much done. Do you think they'll really rethink things? No, I don't. I don't think so. Yeah, maybe not. Seems like they should, but I don't know if they would. You're not going to see a rethink, it seems to me, until Trump leaves the stage and a more normal Republican politician who's able to tap into this stuff, somebody like DeSantis, for instance, whom I was a fan of. Uh-huh. And, you know, whatever you say, he's, he's, a, he's more of a normal politician. And it seems to me that once that happens and then there's a significant electoral defeat, maybe you uh-huh. could see that. I don't know. Right. I mean, neither one of us knows. I mean... Yeah, it's hard to make predictions, especially about, about the future. future right? yes, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> I just had a last question for you, sort of a little yeah. bit, not off topic, but sort of a little different. Is that you're at American Enterprise Institute now, which is, you know, a more conservative oriented think tank. And uh-huh. there aren't a lot of people who move from Center for American Progress to AEI. You know, you're a non-resident senior fellow, so I assume you're not there at the cafeteria all the time. But how is it sort of an odd fit for you? What is it like being at what is, it's not all that conservative, but it's clearly more conservative than Center for American Progress. What's that like? Yeah, okay. I mean, actually, I do show up a fair amount and oh, really? have okay. lunch in their great cafeteria. I mean, I have a desk upstairs on the second floor, so I, I'm not there every day by any stretch, but I do hang out there some and do a lot of projects there. No, I love it. I mean, at CAP, and it's true of most institutions on the left these days, I mean, they're really like advocacy tanks, advocacy organizations, there's right. a party line. You really can't not only use certain terminology, you can't say certain things or write certain things. They're very much an adjunct to the Democratic Party. And it, was, it was, just wasn't very interesting. It wasn't really a think tank. Mm-hmm. So being at AI is great because even though I'm more on the left than you know, most people there, you know, it is a center-right think tank. It is traditionally conservative. There's a lot of tolerance for people with different points of view. There isn't a party line. Everybody doesn't think of the same inbox. People are serious scholars there who write books and they think about stock. (laughs) So I find that a refreshing change from the Center for American Progress. And I've actually, you know, I knew people at AEI for years. I did projects for them when I was at CAP, one of the people who would. 
Hmm. And I, I never looked at conservatives as people who, you know, are fundamentally evil, right? What they do and say can't possibly be from a good place and a good faith. My view is I disagree with these people in policy. That right. is fine. And I, you know, I'll listen to what they have to say, but I'm going to stick to my guns on, you know, whatever the issue might happen to be. But I fundamentally didn't look at them in that kind of Manichaean good and evil kind of way. I just, just seemed ridiculous to me. I knew these people. They were smart. They were interesting. Right. You know, so I, I found it pretty easy to go over to AEI and, and hang out. And if people on the left look at me and say, oh, my God, Rui Teixeira is an AEI. He's like a, you know, semi-fascist. Right, you know, right. That's, I think that's their friggin' problem, you know? I think that's, you know, 90% of what's wrong with the country today is people can't open their mind to try to understand what intelligent people on the other side have to say, and that there's debates here that can and should be had, and it, it's completely unproductive to simply, you know, your tribe against my tribe. I mean, people are sick of that. <laughs> I think we can safely say that ordinary Americans are sick of it, mm-hmm. and I'm sick of it. Right. Well, amen. Thank you, Rui Teixeira, for coming on the program. We're going to have links to your book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? Also going to link to the piece you wrote in the Substack on will immigration hand the election over to Trump? And, you know, maybe after the election or uh, sometime in the second Biden term, if there is one, we may ask you to come back if you've written some more on, about your thoughts on immigration, which I'm sure you will. So anyway, thank you for uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Mark. No, I don't think this issue is going to go away. So I may may very well write more about it. Looking forward to it. And finally, a few thoughts about a recent trip I just made to the border uh, last week. I was in Del Rio and Eagle Pass in Texas on the Rio Grande, which has been ground zero for a lot of the immigration crisis uh, recently. This is where. The issue of the Border Patrol cutting the razor wire that Texas had put up, that's where that happened in Eagle Pass. And Del Rio is where, back in 2021, the first big explosion of the border crisis under Biden happened with all the Haitians who came over and camped under the international bridge there. So this has been, this, that area in Texas has been one of the main places for illegal immigration. And I was out there with my colleague, Todd Benzman. I was sort of planning out a border tour that we're going to be leading in April. And it turns out there's, there's almost no illegal aliens crossing there anymore. I mean, it's still something, there's still a lot to see, but it's interesting how overnight almost the illegal immigration flow there dried up. And that's because the Biden administration pressured Mexico or it didn't even need that much pressure, but it got Mexico to shut down border crossings there because the Mexican government is terrified of Trump being reelected. And so they're literally doing everything they can to reelect President Biden. And we crossed over the border, talked this Mexican army stationed there, not National Guard, but actual regular Mexican army stationed there. And they, they told us this isn't sort of a temporary thing. They've been told that's where they're going to be stationed permanently to prevent people from crossing. It was really kind of notable. Now, of course, apparently the Mexican government hasn't made the same commitment uh, out in Arizona and California borders, and so the illegal immigration is just shifting there. The fact that there were almost no illegal crossings anymore really did underline how much ability the president does have to restrict 
the flow of people. Now, this is not something that was the result of a change in homeland security policy. It was more trying to get Mexico to do their own job for them. Nonetheless, the president's claim that he's helpless to do anything about the border, and that's why he needed the Senate to pass that awful bill in order to enable him to control illegal immigration was false. As he was making that argument, the administration's own actions resulted in less illegal immigration. Now, the levels are still overall across the whole southern border disastrously high, but they're lower than the almost unbelievable levels that illegal immigration was reaching in December. So the point is, the president does have agency here. He's not helpless. He doesn't have to just sit there in the Oval Office and wonder why these things are happening to him. He can do things even without Congress acting to reduce the problem. And as I just discussed with Rui Teixeira during the show, it would be very much to his political benefit and, frankly, to the benefit of the country for him to do what he can within his existing authorities to clamp down on this. And it would um, also develop a certain amount of credibility among the public that the administration is committed to limiting immigration. The problem is they're not making that argument. They're saying they're helpless, but at the same time trying to take steps to reduce illegal immigration. There's a certain irony here. We're going to see more of this kind of thing. I don't know exactly what we're going to see out of Mexico, but we're going to see the administration trying to handle this issue in some way politically without angering their own very left-wing base, as Rui suggested over the next, whatever this is now, nine or 10 months. And uh, it'll be interesting to see, and we will keep you informed here on parsing immigration policy. This is Mark Krikorian signing off for today. 